This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, episode number five, Simon Magus, part two. And we haven't had much going on with the podcast lately. It's been a little over a month since we've done any recording. Um, There was a lot that played into that. Um, Obviously, we are three hours apart with the time difference, so that creates some havoc as well as our family obligations. But uh, we also attended the Institute for Hermetic Studies 20th Anniversary Conference in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, and that was an amazing conference put on by Mark Stavish, and kudos to him for all the work he's done leading up to this, but um, in putting this thing together, it was really special. The quality of speakers was really high. The caliber of conversation was really high. Everyone there seemed to be an actual practitioner with a lot of skin in the game, and everyone was extremely nice, but uh, highly impressed with this. This is the Institute for Hermetic Studies. I would check that out, as well as anything that Mark Stavish puts out. Really high-quality stuff and a really cool guy. And actually, Janice gave a talk at the conference. His topic was focused on the Thought and Practice of the Hermopolitan Egyptian Paradigm. And before I butcher it, I'm just going to let it be right there. And I believe the talk, as well as all the other talks at the conference, will be available in a publication put out by the Institute for Hermetic Studies. So that will be something to look for. Another presenter at the conference I'd like to give a a plug for actually, because his stuff is so awesome, is Hunter Yoder. He makes traditional Pennsylvania Dutch hex signs, and he's got some books on the topic and really approachable, really cool guy, awesome products. Um, I bought a few. I'm probably going to end up buying some more. Really nice stuff, so check him out. He can be found at huntermyoder.com. His company is The Hex Factory. You can also find it on Facebook under that heading. So, without any further ado, I would like to move forward and move on to the episode. 
There were some audio problems, so I apologize for that. I think I edited out most of it. I think Alex's phone was giving us some trouble, so it is what it is, but I fixed most of it. It's it's listenable. Okay, so Simon Magus, part two. Okay, and here we are. We are finally back. Uh, it's been a long time since our last episode. We had a lot of things going on between the three of us, and it seems like forever, but we are here to, to do part two of Simon Magus. I'm here with Janice, as always. How's it going, Janice? Very well, thank you. And with Alex Rivera. What's up? What's up? And so last episode, Janice and Alex dropped some some real bombs on the audience with uh, with their knowledge. And uh, Janice in particular threw a bomb uh, talking about... Um, Simon Magus ending up in Scotland, and you know this is going to be part two for the Holy Blood Holy Grail uh, franchise. <laughs> so stay tuned for that from Janice and Alex. <laughs> Alex dropped a few bombs, some interesting uh, ideas about maybe uh, Dositheos and Simon being sons of John the Baptist. So so that was interesting. Very controversial. Um, so we're going to just jump into it now. And quick recap. I, I think it's really important to focus on <clears throat> or at least emphasize the the Samaritan-Jewish relationship at this time, which was pretty tumultuous and had been for centuries and actually continues to be a poor relationship. And this is the environment that Simon was involved in. You only have to look to the parable of Jesus and the Good Samaritan to see that Samaritans were seen as pretty outside the Jewish world. Um, to say that a uh, Samaritan was good was kind of a controversial thing, and so that was kind of the gist behind Jesus's Jesus's parable. So obviously there was there were some bad feelings there between the two. Um, sects i guess and that goes back pretty far i think alex has said spoken on that eloquently in the past i mean that that goes back to a you know pretty profound schism right and and we covered some of that um history so what else did we talk about we talked about a lot um if you guys want to jump in and and focus on anything that we talked about last time it's been months yeah, I know. Uh, I mean, we briefly touched on uh, the Simon-Helen connection or the couple or the Zizigi connection there. I mean, I know I talked about, you know, uh, myth, uh, Minerva and Jupiter being just, you know, uh, stand-ins of Simon and uh, Helen, according to uh, the church father, Irenaeus. Uh but uh, I mean, we didn't really get into Helen in depth that much, though. And uh, but she's definitely uh, mentioned in a few sources, like you know, for example, uh, the Clementine homilies kind of gets into this. Uh, it pretty much states that, uh, yeah, not only was well, I think we did touch on this earlier, but not only is uh, Helen uh, was you know a concubine of uh simon but also allegedly uh, or allegedly or you know her 
His girlfriend, yeah. basically. But also uh, a student and a, a disciple of John the Baptist. So I also kind of suspect that Helen was might have been uh, John's wife. <laughs> and, and somehow he became... Uh, connected or she became betrothed Simon later I, I, I don't know I just suspect that something's going on there but no, that's just me though Janice uh, yeah I'm not so I'm not so convinced of that because because John was highly ascetic and mm. uh, he acts a lot like in a scene actually or mm. or or I mean he does have you know of course the mandans claim descent from him but if you look at John's practices the fasting, the uh, living in the wilderness, almost like a desert monk, the desert, you know, monks of later. Mm-hmm. Um, if you if you read the, you know, how the Essenes operated and how they lived their lives, I mean, John clearly, if he wasn't if he wasn't an Essene, he belonged to a tradition that was parallel to or perhaps related to the Essenes, and so I think it's more likely he was celibate and ascetic, and I think mm-hmm. that um, you know that that that's kind of interesting because. You know the the Gnostics historically fell along one of usually one of those two axes. They were either um, you know sort of um, ascetic and uh, disciplined, and you know uh, they denied the appetites of the body to try and elevate the spirit, or they took the opposite, more libertine approach, where they you know uh, led a free life and didn't feel that they had to operate in a way that was constrained by the laws of what they believe the archons had set into motion in society. But either way, the aim is to, to liberate, you know, the human being from, from the, from the confines of the body and the world system. But what I think is interesting is if you look at, you know, Simon and Helen, you know, there's a very clear mirror image to Jesus and Mary Magdalene there. Right. And that's, that's something that you had mentioned in the last episode. Yeah, and the, it's a paradigm we're seeing. It's a very clear. So you know, if you look at the the traveling, preaching, the wonder working, the male and female working together as the partners, sort of mirroring heaven on earth. You know, um, you know, mirroring the heavenly society and the earthly society. So sort of embodying that hermetic principle of as above, so below. You know. Um, Absolutely, and I think. I, th- I think the more we talk about the theology of Simon, the more we're going to see that. Oh yeah, for sure. And I and uh, so I just want to say, you know, it's interesting because John does seem to have this ascetic tone, but then Jesus and Simon both went in the opposite direction. It seems. Mm-hmm. Which makes you which makes you wonder: Do we know everything about John? Right. I mean, well, for- the. God, sorry. No, 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 <laughs> Keep interrupting okay. you guys. <laughs> no, it's okay. I mean, there's really, really very little information about John the Baptist anywhere, and so it's hard to say one way or another. It seems, yeah, I agree that he's definitely more of an ascetic on the ascetic side, but it's it's really hard to say for sure. Well, and there's theorizing that, you know, like, you know how Jesus inferred very, very directly that John was the reincarnation of Elijah um, that would further support John being the prophesied uh, Essene teacher of righteousness, you know, because the Essenes sort of had a messianic figure 
uh, called the teacher of righteousness that they prophesied. And according, I think according to some perspectives, you know, that perhaps uh, that, that was John. So it would make sense that, and you know, that, that would make sense too, because John is definitely seen among the Mandaeans and even among some later Gnostic groups as a sort of uh, savior figure. Mm-hmm. So that would, you know, then, so if you, if you consider all three of them, John uh, to some was a savior figure, Jesus to others was a savior figure, and then you have Simon acting as a savior figure to an, yet another group. So again, we see a replicated paradigm, you know? Right, right. <clears throat> Alex, did you, were you going to say something or did we? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah no, I'll, I was just going to say that uh, the Nag Hammadi seems to me, seems to me uh, that it comes from more of an aesthetic strain of Gnosticism, or or at least most of it. I mean, a lot of some of it's more orthodox. Yeah, uh, yeah you really don't see much libertine uh, stuff in it. <laughs> in fact, that kind of goes against it. Well, well, Sophia also seems to actually actively go against the libertine uh movement of certain Gnostic sects because it uh, it actually specifically condemns, you know, the practice of eating sperm and menses <laughs> in, uh, in the Epistle uh, Sophia, in the books of uh, J.U. also uh, condemns this practice. So, so Janice, Janice, you would be out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it could also be a response to the allegations, though. Right. Like those because I think those references in the Pista Sophia and is it the books of the Savior or the Book of Yayu that that's that that says that? Well, either way, I, I think what it's talking about is uh, it could just be a response to the sort of slanderous allegations leveled at the Gnostics by the you know orthodox emerging orthodoxy. Because um, I, I do think that the libertine strain of Gnostics. You know, they weren't doing the things that the church fathers were accusing them of. I, 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 I don't really believe that. I, and, and it's been, you know, it's fairly not. It's really not believed that some of the more extreme practices were being done. Like what Scott, you know, most scholars don't take those allegations seriously anymore. Like, yeah, I mean, we do have to look at the context. So, you know, if if you look at some of these societies that were very strict, um, you know just maybe dating outside of marriage would have been considered, you know, you were having an orgy. So the context of the time also, I think we need to look at what was considered radical back then. I mean, I know the Romans were doing some radical uh, things, but as far as the, the Jews and Samaritans, maybe things that we wouldn't really consider being very radical was considered over the top. What you also have to understand too is among the early Christians, um, the practice the practice during the meetings and you know was was called, you know there was a practice called the love feast, which was a communal meal that they would share, and they would call it a love feast. And so I think that you know and I think that this practice was fairly widespread among many of the early Christian groups. Um, and I think that that's really the origin of the so-called orgies is the church fathers were deliberately saying that the Gnostics were perverting the, the, you know, the love feast or that, you know, the so-called love feast was an orgy when in reality 
it was a reenactment of the Last Supper, you know, which it, which and the Last Supper in itself is a reenactment of a heavenly mystery. So, but let's, you know, I want to stay on topic. I don't want to. All right, yeah, too. it's 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 this topic is so fascinating. It's really hard to stay on, yeah. <laughs> on topic because um, there's so many different ways we can go, and you know. I won't even go there. I have some other things I was going to say, but forget it. Let's just move on. <laughs> um, we, since since we're talking about, um, you know, in the last episode, we did talk a lot a lot about the historical accounts. So the historical accounts we were talking about the the interactions between Peter and Simon, and we won't rehash all that. But um, listen to the last episode if you want to get get some of that action. Um, but I, I do think it's interesting to note. I, I did use GRS Mead for a lot of a lot of my research, and uh, I found s- something interesting that he had put in his work on Simon Magus, a contradiction of the Church Fathers, which which speaks volumes. I think I forget who who he's quoting, but um, well, in Acts you have the apostles converting the Samaritans, and Simon, you know, had to flee, and he's He's rejected and humiliated, right? I mean, that's kind of the the common. Suppose, that's yeah. the that's the common story that most people know. But funny enough, you look at Justin, who was a native of some Samaria, who was another church father. He said that a hundred years after that happened in Acts, um, or or actually, Justin lived a hundred years later. He said that all Samaritans were Simonians. Or many, like a, a majority of, of Samaritans were Simonians. Which, you know, how can, how can uh, Simon have been so humiliated and shown up and rejected and he ran off and took his ball and, and ran away. But yet, a hundred years later, the majority of Samaritans are, are Simonians. So that's, I think that's an interesting contradiction to look at. Well, exactly. You know, it's just yeah, more. It's more evidence that contradicts the you know the narrative that was really built. It was you know polemic. It's a slander narrative. Right. You know, it, it was just meant to discredit a group that was seen as a threat to the emerging consolidation of power. You know, which was really politically motivated. Okay, Alex. Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of the uh, Simonian beliefs uh, become the main motifs of later Gnostic uh, systems, you know? Right. So, uh, I mean, the, I mean, the idea that Simon, uh, well, I mean, yeah, in Acts, he says he was baptized by uh, Philip, and then he was uh, rebuked by Peter. I don't know how true that, that is, but I mean, who knows? <laughs> right. Right. But, but, but it definitely, but, but he was popular enough that he made into Acts. So, there's that, you know. Uh, well, good, but I want to kind of get into this. Might be a good segue for the actual theology of Simonianism. Sure. Um, yeah. So, in Simonian religion, they believe in a fallen female power called the Epinoia or the Anoia, right? Yep. Uh, so, they believe that she was. Well, basically, uh, she's analogous to Sophia, basically, just Sophia. Um, but uh, they believe that she reincarnated, uh, or this fallen power reincarnated to different uh, 
incarnations. Like, for example, uh, Helena Troy, she's one of these incarnations. And some might argue that Mary Madeline might have been another one of these incarnations. Uh, or Helen, so they're all kind of the same character. And you know, it's also interesting, um, we might get a little off topic here, but there's a group or a uh, prophet by the name of Elchisai, or well, Elchisai, he's yeah. mentioned. Uh, yeah, he's mentioned by uh, Hippolytus, but he, he but he believed that uh, you know Jesus also reincarnated into different uh, beings or characters throughout history. Like Seth is one of these incarnations, or or more like Seth was like, or Jesus was an incarnation of Seth. You know, Excellent. so now uh, they also believed in a transcendental father, and that they also believed that um, that the law was uh, given by angels and that uh, the material world was created, also created by these same angels. And, uh, and But these are fallen angels, basically. They're the archons, they're the principalities and the rulers that Paul talks about in uh, Ephesians, you know. So, uh, but, you know, but a lot of people, well, not a lot of people, but a lot of the uh, church fathers accused the uh, Simonians, kind of getting back to what we just discussed earlier, being uh, libertine. And, you know, people like, you know, Carpocrates or the, uh, the Phibianites or the Barbellonostics or the Canites, they all kind of tended to that same sort of libertine uh, practice, you know. It's kind of very tantric, but we'll get to that. But uh, uh, what do you guys think? No, it's a great point. I would I would argue, and I'm curious to see what you think about this, Janice, that not only was Helen reincarnated in these historical figures dotted from place to place and time to time, but that um, we all have that fallen thought within each of us, and that Simon was just kind of using himself and Helen as examples of of kind of that narrative. Right, the realized man and realized woman, yes. Well, that's the thing is, the Anoia is the lost sheep of the Nasin hymn, you know, the soul that became lost in the, you know, watery chaos and the Savior sees her and looks down and asks the Father to send him forth to, you know, uh, restore her to her former glory, which is a reflection also of the drama in the Pistis Sophia, the, the, the sort of sacred drama. So what we see here is a is a Gnostic paradigm because Anoia means thought. So the thought descends from the upper realm of the noose uh, down into the lower realm, into the wastes, and um, becomes lost in the darkness of chaos. Now, this is a you know this this is something that also occurs microcosmically as well within each one of us, like you were saying, Dominic. Um, and in this, uh, according to the you know according to what we have of Simon's teaching. You know, the Enoya was also associated with Athena, which makes sense because um, Athena was the, f- the first thought of Zeus. She sprang forth from the mind of Zeus, fully formed. In the same way, Sophia sprang forth from the Pleroma and descended into the chaos. And we, um, and we see this also in her- Hermeticism. Right. I mean, a very similar right. story, which Simon yes. would, would have been privy to. 
you know, and this is a, and you know, Minerva or, or Minerva or Athena, you know, she was born via parthenogenesis. I mean, you know, the the she was not born via mother. She was born directly from the mind of Zeus. So she, so this is important because in this myth of Sophia, then what we see is Sophia attempting to emulate the pattern of her own birth by giving birth to the demiurge independently of her consort. So in the same way that Athena was born into, you know, was born of a father without a consort, uh, and keep in mind that Athena is the goddess of wisdom. So, you know, it, so this is a direct corollary here. So then we see the goddess of wisdom uh, turns around as Sophia and attempts to reproduce that same paradigm, that same model, and, and in doing so engenders the demiurge. So, Janice, can we can we talk about how um, Simon, in in doing this, in framing himself as Zeus or Jupiter and framing uh, Helen as Athena or thought and, and Simon being the, the great power. Um, how, how is this in, I mean, this is, this is how magical practice works, right? You are lining up as many things as you can um, as above, so below in order to harmonize, right? And it seemed as though Jesus was doing the same, as you mentioned, with Mary Magdalene. Can you talk about how, on, on, a, on a more down-to-earth level, what Simon was doing, if that makes sense? Well, well, what it appears he was doing was attempting to mirror the, the cosmic union, the union between the cosmic man and the cosmic woman in the earthly man and the earthly woman. You know, because... Right. Ultimately, the Godhead was, see, be, was seen as androgynous and hermaphroditic. And then when the Godhead split into two, it, it becomes a male-female pair. And in Gnosticism, that's a very important concept because that male-female pair, pair is called a syzygy. And so the idea is that in their earthly union of the male and female, the heros gamos of, of the cosmic male and female is reproduced and uh, what in Kabbalah is called tikkun, which is the re- repairing of the world, the restoration restoration of the broken world uh, is accomplished because the harmony of the original unity, the undivided unity, is reproduced in the unification of the male and female on the on this lower plane, which is you know which, which is also referenced in a saying in the Gospel of Thomas. You know, when you make the two into one, when you make the inner, when you unite the inner and the outer, when you make the male and female into a single one, there you will see the kingdom. And and they're essentially describing a reversion from the state of multiplicity and fragmentation into the state of unity. Um, so I believe that Simon was essentially enacting that mystery, and I also believe Jesus was doing that as well. Um which is consistent with the Gnostic teaching is found in many of the sects. Right. So we're getting to the core kind of uh, beliefs here. And um, also we had talked about this recently when we were hanging out in person. Um, Simon had a descent through through the different layers, through the, the realms to get to Earth, in which he had to disguise himself 
from each of the, I guess, the archons or from each of the rulers of each of the planes that he traveled through, which is the exact opposite of what uh, the Gnostics were training for, essentially, um, to get back to the highest power. And we need to take a little segue into Neoplatonic theology to really understand what we're ta- what's being ta- discussed here. Because, it, you know, in, in Neoplatonic theology, there is two orders of beings, essentially. There's the ascending order the, and the descending order. So, you know, we're going to step away from a concepts of good and evil, of, you know, right and wrong here, and we're going to think of things a little differently. You see, the, the descending order is... is the path that souls follow down into incarnation, into materiality. Uh, the daimons uh, are associated with the descending order. The the order, the descending order is also the order that draws life and mind and light from the upper spheres down into the lower realm to uh, to make fertile, to facilitate growth. And to uh, you know create the link between upper and, and lower, so the daimons not only are spirits of nature that maintain the coherency of the of the material realm and the body, but they're also responsible for drawing down the heavenly influences. And in the same sense, theurgists would. Uh, work closely with daimons because those same daimons are the ones that would bring the blessings and the messages from the gods because they bring those things down from above. Now, the the other order is the ascending order. And the ascending order has to do with the ascent from materiality and spirit. And in the ascending order, you find the heroes, you find the angels because – uh, it's like the it's like Jacob's ladder. Those are the angels going up. Those are the the heroes lead us upward by helping us to triumph over our lower natures. And as heroes, daimons and heroes are both both partially divine uh, and partially of another nature. They're of a medial nature, a middle nature, and the heroes being part divine and part human are the perfect uh, facilitators of transition from earthly incarnation into heavenly realization. So the descent that we see Simon and Jesus both engaging in in the Gnostic texts um, is a descent of the spirit into matter. And then the ascent that we see, for instance, Jesus doing, and you know, we would hope Simon as well, is is in a sense back to the realm from which they came. And like I had mentioned earlier, I mean, you see the same descent, and we talked about it before, of the cosmic man in in the Corpus Hermeticum coming Precisely. coming yeah. down into the physical realm. And isn't it? Don't you also see this in the kind of the afterlife adventures uh, in in the Egyptian uh, theology of of after you die, you have to go through these different levels and meet with these different boss characters, essentially, and, mm-hmm. and and pass into the next level. And there's another boss character. Is that is that a fair representation of of the Egyptian theology as well? Well, yeah, because it's not 
it's not considered to be this easy uh it's not considered to be this easy transition it's it's more like like you described it i mean you're passing through different levels and layers they call them pylons in dua and in amenti which is the spirit lower spirit realm and this is not dissimilar to the toll keepers in eastern orthodoxy actually you do have to pass, you know, the, and the toll keepers are another version of, you know, the Gnostic sort of archons as well, you know, that block your way and, you know, try and keep you from advancing. So there's tests, which is why this is the path of the heroes, because these tests require courage and heroism and and strength because you are tested the entire discard. If you're going to make the journey back out of the, lower realms, you are tested um, repeatedly as you are discarnate. And this also is a mirror of the Hermetic Ascent, where when you enter down into the cosmic realm, you assume seven garments, which are related to the seven planets. Um, and as you ascend, you let go of each one of these garments or bodies. So the earthly body we live in is really the most dense of the bodies that contains all of the other bodies that correspond to each one of the uh, seven heavens, which in Gnosticism were called the seven heavens of chaos. Yes. So the ascent ascent out is a gradual ascent out of materiality and physicality into um, a more purely noetic state, a state of of eventually complete freedom from, from the mind. Or from the body, rather. You know, uh, in the in Egyptian uh, religion, you know, we look at the uh, books of the dead of Egypt. Uh, there's you know the concept of the um the onduat, right? Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's basically like that. I mean, look at the Ophite Gnostics of uh, Celsus and Origin. Uh, the way he did, you know, Origin and Celsus, uh, the, the way they describe. Uh, you know, these, the astral realm, you know, these all different uh, heavens stacked up, stacked on top of each other. They all seem to be very reminiscent of, uh, of that, the Anduat, for sure. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and it seems as though Simon was would have been a great catalyst to bring these ideas. Uh, if these ideas didn't already exist in Samaria, um, he would have been a good person if we had to say who brought these ideas over um, you have to always take what the church fathers say with a grain of salt but when they say that Simon was the father of all heresies you have to wonder I I think maybe they were right on that one that he did bring a lot of this uh, Gnosticism or what we call today Gnosticism he, he's the one that kind of brought a lot of this over well and it's fairly clear that Simon was probably initiated well, not probably, definitely. Not only in the sect of John, but just as Jesus went to Egypt, we spoke about this in the last episode, so did Simon. And his theology is a reflection of that. It's a reflection of right. of that uh, initiatory, um, initiatory spiritual magic that, that the Egyptian priesthood practiced par excellence. I mean, this is, the you know, the origins of Greek theurgy lie in, in Egypt. In Egyptian, Egyptian hieratic uh, theurgy. Are you guys so, there? Oh, okay. 
Yes. Yeah. Okay. Exalted or holy work. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. I'm gonna I'm gonna move us along unless you guys want to add anything else to what we were just saying. Not so this this other um, the more I researched Simon and Jesus and John the Baptist simultaneously, the more I kept coming to Hermitism and and the Mandaeans as well. I just kept finding myself back at the Mandaeans and that certain certain kind of uh, uh, common denominators, common teachings between all of these these different individuals and paradigms. So I want to I want to talk about the tree because that would seem to have been a uh, a major symbol to Simon. But first I want to I want to touch on the tree as it relates to the teachings of John the Baptist and of Jesus. So <clears throat> these are very popular sayings everyone will be familiar with them, but it's funny that you don't see them compared and contrasted to each other. And then when you see what Simon says, it's remarkably similar, which really begs the question why has no one compared this or brought this up before um well that's podcast somebody's going to be writing a book on it and you know saying it's their new discovery right so if anybody does that after today then we know they stole it from from us but um <laughs> uh so in luke talking about john the baptist um john said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him you brood of vipers this is a very well-known saying who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, therefore produce fruit worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe lies ready at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So that's that last sentence is pretty important to remember. So then Matthew talking um, about Jesus um, Jesus says, uh, this is Matthew 7, uh, You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. So that's very similar to what John says. So Jesus being a student of John, that makes sense, right? Uh, Absolutely. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Um, and then Jesus also has another parable about uh, a man has a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He went to look for the fruit on it but did not find any. So he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, for the past three years I have come to search for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Therefore, cut it down. Why use up the soil? It's also the fig tree that Jesus curses. Right, right. No, that's 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 true. I didn't even add that to my notes. So, I mean, it's it's uh, undeniable the how similar those those teachings are. Um, then you you jump over. I'm going to jump over to the Mandaeans from their their holy book, the Ginza. Um, they have some really trippy stuff they talk about. Um, but there's a lot of fruit imagery. There's a lot of tree imagery and there's a lot of fire imagery so like i said the more i studied simon the more i kept coming back to the mandaeans not to say simon was a mandaean but i think more to the fact that they all came from the same tree so to speak so in the ginza um before all the worlds came into being there was a sole enormous fruit and when the enormous fruit entered a fruit the great and glistening king of light began 
an ether of radiance existed. From the ether of radiance came the living fire. From the living fire there was a light. By the power of the king of light came the great fruit and life. The great fruit came alive, etc., etc. So they, they talk a lot about fruit and living fire, and we're going to see that with Simon quite a bit, and I think it's pretty interesting. And so according to Hippolytus talking about Simon, Simon talked about there there's a living fire there's a there's kind of a uh, material and an immaterial fire and it's represented as a, a great tree he considers the manifested side of the fire to be the trunk branches leaves and the bark surrounding it on the outside so the tree is is kind of a representation of of fire so just like i was saying in the mandan work the trees and and the living fire let's see but the fruit of the tree Hippolyte is talking about what Simon taught. Um, if its imaging has been perfected and it takes the shape of itself, it's placed in the storehouse and not cast into the fire. For the fruit, he says, is produced to be placed in the storehouse, but the husk to be committed to the fire, that is to say, the trunk, which is generated not for its own sake, but for that of the fruit. So you guys want to jump in on any of that? Well, it's very interesting to me because we do see the symbolism of the fruit, the tree, it's also significant because Simon commented on Genesis, and the tree is obviously very significant in Genesis because you have two trees. You know, you have the tree of life, and you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as an aside, if you look at the uh, Wait Smith tarot deck, you'll see in the lover's card both of those trees represented, and one of them is represented as a tree that is on fire. Hmm. So you have, you know, you have those two trees in uh, Genesis, in the in the narrative of Adam and Eve. I believe this is uh, very important. I think also this is talking again. This also relates to a common Gnostic theme, which is uh, treasure houses and treasuries and the treasury of the light. It's called. So you have the tree, but then you have the treasury. Um, additionally, of course, you know, anyone. Uh, familiar with Kabbalah, uh, could not help but think of the Kabbalistic tree of life, especially the Lurianic tree of, of uh, Isaac Luria. You know, um, so this is all this is all significant here because these things are more than likely very deeply interconnected. And again, you know, Simon's teachings came not only from initiation and from tradition, but obviously from from gnosis, from from direct experience of the inner realm. You know, that was that was the essence of what he was teaching was things that he had seen and experienced. Because for the Gnostics, you know, the primacy is on the direct experience. The direct experience is what unlocks the esoteric meaning of the Parables and myths and teachings and lore. Also in Kabbalah, there's a teaching that there's the two forms of the Torah. There's the Torah, the earthly Torah, and then there's the Torah, or the Torah of light, which is sometimes um, depicted as a, as the letters of fire. So, so just as we have the tree, the outer tree, and essentially the inner tree, we also have 
you know, the inner Torah and the outer Torah. And this is this relates also to the Mandan mysteries, because in um, in the Mandan mysteries, there's actually a living. The very concept of the holy book is an archetypal being, uh, a light being. It's uh, the book of light. It's a, it's a living book. So those are some thoughts I have on it. I mean, I could go on forever about it, but those are some initial thoughts. Yeah, I, th- I think the it's important to emphasize, and I didn't do such a great job of emphasizing it because uh, I was reading my notes, of this idea of the concealed and the manifested aspects of the fire. And again, I I, I've, I see this in the Corpus Hermeticum, in book two in particular, where I think um, Hermes is talking to Asclepius about the essence of, of the divine. And there is this talk of this manifested portion that you can see and and work with, and then there's this unmanifested, concealed, unknown aspect, which are two sides of the same coin, essentially. We also see, of course, Heraclitus. Uh, Heraclitus, you know, believes that fire was the first principle, and the fire was the creative principle that formed everything. This is also found in the Chaldean oracles uh, where you see the oracles speaking of the, you know, the, the fire flashing formlessly in the depths of the universe. And we also see the hyperzukos, the flower of fire, uh, which is one of the names of one of the demiurges. So, you know, um, the, the idea of the fire as a primal creative principle is significant and um, is consistent with the initiatory knowledge of that time. And, you know, and additionally, you do find that uh, the fire is a, uh, is a primary principle in, uh, you know, the Egyptian, the Egyptian traditions as well. I mean, in some cults it was the water that was first, but in others it is the fire, such as in Memphis or in Heliopolis, the fire is really the uh, pro forma principle. What do you guys think about this storehouse or the treasure house, um, Alex? You could jump in if you have you have any input on this. But I know the treasure house was mentioned um, in the works of Simon, um, but you also see it, like you had said, Janice. Um, it's mentioned in other places. The Pistis Sophia talks about a treasure house. The Manichaeans talk about a treasure house. Um, you also see um, the prayer of Apostle Paul from Codex 1, talk of a treasure house, um, my Redeemer, redeem me, for I am yours, the one who has come forth from you, you are my mind, bring me forth, you are my treasure house. So what do you guys think about this treasure house idea? What is this exactly? Well, I have a lot of to say of what, uh, what both uh, Janus and you said. So first, yeah. the storehouse idea. Well, that was a very common allegory that a lot of the Platonic philosophers would use, like uh, the physician Galen, for example. So, you know, the whole idea of, uh, you know, cutting the wheat from the chaff, well, that really refers to the digestive process of the stomach and that the barn or the storehouse is basically... The nutrition, right? That's like absorbed into your body. And that's kind of like how 
you know, Jesus, John, even Simon describes, you know, uh, believers being grafted to uh, the tree of life. I think, no, I think Paul actually talks about that too in Romans, where, you know, believers are either uh, cut off or grafted in, basically, into the uh, tree of life. But I always thought it was interesting that Galen talked, also talked about how the stomach was basically the your the storehouse <laughs> mm-hmm. so it's so it also connects to the whole simon idea of uh you know eden or the body being just symbolic of eden uh or by, whatever by, vice versa <laughs> but but yeah so what do you think Janison? well um i think also the treasure house following the analogical hermetic principle it also relates to the pleroma, you know, because the pleroma is sealed um, like a treasure house. It is, you know, that's why they're called the, the treasuries of light. Mani talked about the treasuries of light as well. Also, the Ishraqi, uh, um, the Islamic Sufi uh, illuminationist school of philosophers who were concealing hermetic and Gnostic teachings within Islam, uh, such as Ibn Arabi and Suravardi, they also talked about the treasure houses of light. And it's remarkably consistent with Gnostic and Manichaean and Zoroastrian doctrines in that regard. Um, and of course, in Gnosticism, the uh, realm of light, which to people familiar with the Kabbalah, you could uh, say analogize with the Ainsaf or the realm of light is separated by a veil or a limit, a boundary. It's sealed, just like a treasury is sealed. Um, so the light, the the, the effulgence, um, you know, it, it, it's impossible for it to be released from that place. Um, so you know, the 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 idea of being from the treasury or returning to the treasury is also a way of speaking of returning to the pleroma because I, um, you know, just as in when you get, when you're dealing, for instance, an analogy I've used in the past is uh, quantum physics uh, in this. So, you know, matter all, all, you know, atomic matter contains an antiparticle. So you have the positive and negative, but when it reaches the speed of light, there is no longer an antiparticle. So in that same sense, when you're getting into the esoteric ontology, the light realms contain their own form of matter, you could almost say. So the, the, light, the light is its own matter. So it contains itself. It's self-contained. And like, so again, that relates back to that treasury. Right. So great points from both of you. Um, thanks for clarifying your thoughts on that. So the fire <clears throat> we talked about, um, it was also called, according to Hippolytus, Simon also called the fire in different places the perfect intellectual. He called the fire the boundless power and the universal root. Um, so these these are all different uh, manifestations or ways to describe this this universal fire. Um, we talked about the concealed and the manifested side of the fire. Um, the tree represents the manifested aspect. And Hippolytus also said that Simon says, Simon says, all parts of the fire 
concealed and manifested, contain uh, intelligence. And I assume the translation comes from noose. Yes. Okay, so so we're we're digging deeper into the theology of Simon, and I don't know that this is available anywhere in such a <laughs> you know in such a format. You really have to dig for this information typically. So the fire is um, there are six roots that that come from the fire, and from the six roots come the cosmos. The six roots equal three sezygi, so three pairs. And so let's talk about those those six roots slash three sezygi, because this is pretty fundamental to Simon's uh, thought and theology. Um, so the sezygi are mind and thought, um, also heaven and earth, um, voice and name, which also equates to sun and moon, and reason and reflection, which equates to air and water. Do you guys want to talk about this as IG? Let's do one at a time. So start okay. with the first one. So mind and thought, which which represent, or in the Sethian kind of paradigm, can be the one and Barbello. Yeah. And it's also, like I said, uh, heaven and earth. So you see that in Baruch, that kind of interplay between heaven and earth. And for those people with the bent toward the I Ching, you could... Think of it also like that. You know, you have the primal, the primal pair of heaven and earth. Even in that, I mean, it's a very, it, it's it's almost a universal um, dyad there. The heaven earth dyad, right? You know, and in different cultures, you know, different cultures, one is male and the other is female. So, you, so you have like the heaven and earth, you know, and that's a universal thing um, in many cultures. Um. But really, heaven relates to mind, and earth relates to the body. So again, you know, there's heaven and earth, there's nous and anoya, and anoya is also thought, and the nous is, you know, mind, but it's spiritual mind, you know? So so there's three, there's, there's really, if you think of it carefully, there's three levels that we're talking about at minimum here. Right. Nous and anoya... Now, noose, as we spoke about, spoken about in our hermetic episodes, as we've spoken about in the prior episode, noose is not the rational discursive mind. It is the cosmic mind of light. It's more like the Buddha mind in Buddhism. It is the formative power of the mind of God, really. It's the, it's the mind of God. So noose is this universal intellect. Perhaps Masons might see it as the great architect. Um, or the grand architect, I should say. Inuya is the active thought. In Egyptian theology, this this is a pretty direct relation. This is pretty directly related to um, Ray or Amen and the uh, Eye of Ray, because the Eye of Ray was frequently perceived as a goddess in its own right. It was a living sort of deity, and it was feminine. It was considered or first emanation of, of the god of light. And noose is also associated with fire and with light. So you have fire and light and uh, mind and thought. So then the next hypostasis or projection or, you know, um, unfoldment of that is uh, is in sky and earth or heaven and earth, which is also like Uranus and Gaia, the, the two titans that produce the gods. 
And then you have it in the human body as the mind and the body. And you can also see it even even farther down the chain as Simon and Helen. Exactly. The personalized, you know, then you see the personalized form. You know, and of course we've already spoken about uh, Zeus and Athena, you know, because Zeus is Zeus and Athena is Anoia. So you have these different levels esoterically that pertain to these societies and it is it is valid because the society is considered to be a self-consistent unity an undivided unity the male and the female are like a yin and yang they form a whole so the a, a society is an aeon and an aeon is a self-complete reality composed of a time element and a, and a space element you could say or composed of a um, male element and a female element, you could say, or composed of uh, substance and form in a Neoplatonic sense. So each one of these uh, sazygies has those fundamental, uh, complementary, interdependent characteristics. Right, and so um, in the Simonian theology, thought descends and and mind must must retrieve and I, I think you see you know in later like this alleged Sethian Gnosticism we know what happens when the Sazygi are not in unison um, we have Sophia who who then on her own creates Yalbadeoth because she is not in union with her Sazygi right so, and that's also pointing to the fact that despite the fact that they're an interdependent unity, they also are, in addition to that, they also do have their own independent consciousness. So would it be safe to say that um, on a more psychological level, if we're, bringing, if we're bringing this down like a fractal on many different levels, um, if mind and thought are not unified, then bad things happen? Uh, psychologically. Right. Right. Well, it's it's equivalent to um, thought running off or becoming carried away with itself, you know. And in mind, a mind that functions without thinking is a mind that is, um, you know, is unwise. And if, and thought that runs off without a mind to contain it, to put limits and boundaries on it, you know, it can lead a person to all kinds of things. Again, this is. The practical component of it. Right, right. We're taking this down to the the lower levels, um, but I could see this in conspiracy theories, you know, in conspiracy theorists, um, people who are brilliant, but um, their wisdom is misplaced, and they create um, some horrific creations, <laughs> some horrific thoughts that are not in union with with their mind, and so it's not going to be proper. Or it's not going to be correct. Well, that's actually valid because there's thought. The Enoia is is also considered to be a. She is considered to be dynamically creative, almost like the Shakti in um, Sh- Shaivism. You know, the Enoia is the creative power, like the uh, so like like Sophia in the Wisdom of Solomon. You know, she is the creative power par excellence. But the creative power, if it is not wedded to mind, what is, what is that saying? The sleep of reason produces monsters? 
You know what I mean? And that's exactly what happens in some of the myths of Sophia. You know, the, the Demiurge, the Archons are produced from her transgressing her bounds, transgressing the noose, and, um, you know, her, her, crea- her creative power becomes unchecked. And as we know, creative growth, creative growth without limitation is cancer. And that's also interesting because cancer is the astrological sign that relates to the mother and to birth. So it does, again, tie back to exactly what we're discussing. Alex, any thoughts on thought? Yeah, I mean, uh, Sophia, basically, she becomes alienated from the noose, her mind, due to uh, just maybe ego, you, you can call it. But she basically needs to be brought back into harmony with the noose, right? Uh so you have these three different levels, really, uh, but which, you know, you have these seven aeons of Simon that can be brought down or connected with these three levels. You have the, uh, you know, the divine world, the unmanifest uh, triple aeon, as some Gnostics would call it, right? Or the pneumatic world. And then you have uh, this middle distance or uh, psychic or astral plane that, you know, or thought reflection and name can exist and then 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 it then it goes down to uh you know the physical world malkuth right the physical world or the hyalic world so there's these three uh correspondences that those different uh, layers or emanations can fall into and yeah like going back with what uh jana said earlier about the treasure house being the part of this, uh, the all, right? The incorruptible form is also Keter, right? And it all connects to this, uh, but it's all part of this great cosmic tree that Simon talks about, which is this, like the hidden form is the all devouring fire and the manifest, uh, it's also fire. <laughs> <laughs> so like there's a hidden fire and then there's a manifest fire. But, uh, so basically that this fruit, this eternal fruit uh, that Simon talks about is the it represents, you know, this the divine spark or the nomadic man uh, that continues to burn and grow within the true vine, you know. So what's interesting, though, uh, when you read Hippolytus, man, he that guy, he really lays it out. <laughs> but uh yeah, but what's interesting is that Simon, he also called himself the Alpha and the Omega, too, by the way, that you see in Revelation, which also fits with the uh, Hermetic, I'm sorry, Hermaphroditic standing one that you see as well. So he's like, basically the standing one is like the Cosmic Christ or the Logos, in essence. Uh, but also, you know, it's also interesting, too, is that the Tree of Fire uh, can be seen as a symbol of uh, the Queen of Heaven or Ashtara in the uh, first temple too. And uh, I think uh, I think in Isaiah 44 it talks about how Yahweh is also described as a hermaphrodite, hermaphroditic God that gives birth to Israel. It's kind of weird, you know. He's like he's also a, he's a father figure. Yeah, he's also has feminine traits as well. 
Um, but uh, the Queen of Heaven uh, and the Tree of Fire are very much connected for sure. So the next is IG is a voice and name, um, also sun and moon. So Janice, take it away. So that's Fone and Onoma. Uh, voice and name correspond again to the two aspects of two aspects that are interdependent. You know, there, there again, we have another Sazaiji and with it, you almost have the, um, another aspect of the Sazaiji's is, um, the hidden and manifest side or the hidden and the revealed side, you know? So we have a voice and we have a name. So we also have form and substance here. You know, you could say the voice is the substance and the name is the form. It's kind of it's similar to mind and thought. You can't have thought without mind. Right. Exactly. Exactly. One gives substance, the other gives form. Um, now, with the sun and moon, that's pretty interesting because it also, the trait that both of those share is luminousness. You know? Mm-hmm. So you have sun, which is, uh, you know, the masculine radiant principle. And then you have the moon, which is the feminine radiant principle. And again, we often see Sophia associated with the um, the moon, with Celine or um, Diana. More Celine usually, though. And actually, Helena or Elena is a name of the moon. It's a it's a name of the moon goddess. You know, there's a very significant aspect there. You know, so we and the name is the name is something very close to the logos. You know, the the, the logos and the the name are sort of part part and parcel of the same thing. The logos is the divine name spoken into creation, which gives form to all of creation. It's the pattern. It's also the spoken this the 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 coming forth and the spoken thing. Just as the sun and moon order time. The rising and setting of the sun create, and the, the movement of the sun and the circle of the heavens creates the passage of time in the year, just as the movement of the moon during the month creates the passage of time in the month. So here again, we're going to an even more personal level, too, because we went from sky and earth now to moon and sun. So we're talking about luminaries within the sky now. And, I mean, it's it's obvious, but worth noting that Helen was also known as Luna. Right. So Luna, Selena, Helena, you know, Elena, um, uh, these are all, these are all correlate. These all correlate. They're all, they all connect back together. So you have this, this Luna solar. And again, um, you know, the sun and moon in alchemy are again... The, you have they are the subjects of the hero's gamas. You know, in the alchemical process, the idea is to unify the sun and the moon. So here again, we see a replication of that process uh, of the two luminaries. And so, so I think it's very interesting when you think about it. Also, the fact that the moon goes from full to completely dark could also be a could I can see how in a Gnostic sense. That uh, could be analogized to the uh, descent of Sophia into the darkness, and then her subsequent, uh, subsequently being raised back into light, or elevated back into light. Alex, do you have anything to say on this? 
Well, uh, the other thing I got to add is uh, when you talk about Helen and, you know, their redemption of uh, Epinoia, it uh, also, we also have to take into consideration the exegesis of the soul, but I don't know if you want me to get into that in depth now, because I think we have a few more aeons to go, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's let's, let's continue on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Are we good with voice and name? Yes. Well, also voice and name are associated with yet another thing too. So in ancient Egyptian theology, you know, um, the name is a very very important thing. Like everything that lives, everything that 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 is alive, has a secret name. And if the magician can know the name of something, he can control it. So we see that in the Isis, uh, Isis actually, as the divine magicianist, acquires the name of the supreme god and thus achieves identification with the highest deity through knowing the name of that deity. Um, so that's how she becomes also a powerful savior. So the 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 phone and onoma, the the voice and name, have to do with um, speaking existence into creation. Or I create as I speak, uh, which is one, um, you know, it's considered to be one potential meaning of the word abracadabra, which is related back to the Gnostic Abrasax, uh, you know, figure. So so it does connect. Also, the fiat lux, you know, the let there be light of, of um, you know, of Genesis, but also of the Hermetica deals with this. Mm-hmm. And, and you also see the the ascent of the Gnostics in their astral video games are are <laughs> taught to uh, memorize the names of the boss characters of each uh, level essentially, so that they can have power over that entity and move on to the next level. Yeah, yeah. And so name is name is really important because it's a signature of everything in creation. You know, and then if you think about, um, you know, the in the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You have the actual voice, you know, and what does the voice do? Like thought, the voice springs forth from the mouth. So when the name is spoken, the voice and the name are one, and and uh, when the word springs forth, it comes forth. Uh, as the voice, you know, and, and in Kabbalah, uh, the voice is often associated with the feminine principle and the name with the male principle. I believe there's, it's called the, in one sense, in one iteration, it's called the bath call. There's the daughter of the voice or the, the daughter, the, the daughter voice. And then there's also the um, Baruch Hashem, the holy name, which is essentially the Logos figure. So in later later Kabbalistic theology, you have that. Okay, so the next pair, the next is Aiji, uh, reason and reflection, also called air and water. And we see now now where we had the um, the noose, the fire noose before. Now we see the uh, the rational, analytical, intellectual mind, the reason, the air. You know, and just as air creates a circuit that moves the water, you know, you know, because the whole precipitation cycle is is related to the movement of air, 
you know, and air, air communicates. But symbolically, going back very far, air is associated with the intellect and with the word. So, so there's both of these aspects there, but air is associated with uh, analysis. Um, so, you know, it's very interesting there because we have reason and we have reflection. And I think water and reflection, there's an obvious connection there. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the water, reflection on water is the same thing as, you know, what do we say when we're thinking about something deeply? We're reflecting on it. You know, the, the process of reason should be wedded to reflection, you know. Mm-hmm. So, the, so, so on a practical level, on the personal level, you know, reflection and reason should be joined because, again, if one goes off and does its own thing, things become problematic. The mind can analyze things into the smallest parts forever. If reflection is, becomes a part of that process, then there is a passivity. There's an active thought, but then there's a pause to reflect. And so we have that. And then we have the watery nature, again, hearkening back to hermetic theology and hermetic ideas, and the airy component representing the um, spirit that leapt forth from the watery mass in the Poimandu. Right, right. Alex, anything to add on reason and reflection? Well, it's like the idea of, uh, in Genesis, right? You have a God moving over, or the Spirit of God moving the face of the deep in Genesis, which connects, of course, to the prologue in the Gospel of John. You know, when uh, you know, this, the Logos also spreads over the darkness and then uh, it, it, it brings uh, matter and creation into, into reality, right? So the Logos is basically the, the reason, not not so much just uh, mind, but really it's the reason that brings forth structure or order into reality. <clears throat> and then you know, and you've seen that story of the disciples going to Jesus when he's walking on water, right? So it's just basically this idea that you know the logos also brings he he calms the the storms, the dark waters of the abyss, and, it, and then he. Uh, takes control of it and then brings uh, or shines light onto it. So interesting. That's very well put. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. You just pulled oh. that one out of, out of nowhere. That yeah, was a I don't good know. one. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just, I just challenged it. <laughs> nice. <clears throat> so I think the common theme that I'm seeing and, and maybe you guys as well is this idea of harmonizing of harmony. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and paraphrasing Hippolytus on on Simon's overarching uh, mission with, with all of this, it, it seems as though if this imaging is perfected among the six roots, then you will embody completeness and you will become the equivalent of the boundless power, which... I, I think leads into how Simon then would be able to call himself the standing one because he was able to embody this com- completeness on a multitude of levels. I think it's it's also about how many levels you can stack and how many levels you can harmonize. And if you can harmonize these six roots, 
then you can be considered the standing one who is the equivalent of the boundless power. Also, it's also significant, and I really agree, and I thought you put that beautifully. It's, It's also significant that there's six roots, because the six is an expansion of the number two, okay? And two, of course, is a doubling of the number one. So from one come two, and from two come many. The reason I'm saying this is because this typical geo, typically the number six is depicted as a hexagram, which is two triangles, you know, often known as the Star of David, um, you know, the Megan David or whatever. Um, it's also called the Seal of Solomon because it's traditionally used as a representation of the union of heaven and earth, among other things, because the upward-pointing triangle uh, representing the three male principles also represents the the father or the fire. And the downward-pointing triangle, of course, represents the mother principle, and it resembles the shape of the yoni of the female, just as the upward-pointing triangle represents the shape of the phallus of the male. And the two conjoined, uh, symbolically represent the primal unity from which male and female spring and in which they are both rooted. It's also a symbol of the alchemical process, the phases of the alchemical process and the end goal, which is the gold. Uh, really, it's the electrum, the gold of the sun and the silver of the moon become united in one substance, uh, which is the reconstituted prima materia uh, from chaos comes order darkness comes light and the light actually arises as the union of the two principles so you the hexagram is a powerful symbol of the union of male and female which is important and a fundamental uh component of simon's uh ideology and theology very nice yeah good good points i couldn't help also thinking um the, the six the six powers how and this harmonizing um, reminded me of the noble eight, uh, eightfold path in Buddhism, where if if you you can harmonize these eight points: right view, right resolve, right speech, right conduct, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, samadhi, then you were able to gain liberation from the cycle of birth and and death. I, I think that's very well put, and I think that it's significant that we see that. Not only in the sixfold root we see the four elements represented, but we also see the cosmic uh, spheres represented. The cosmic, you know, the the cosmic uh, forces represented. You know, we see heaven and earth. We see the sun and the moon. We see earth, air, fire, and water. So we see all the the components of reality represented in this in these you know, societies which form one unity. And that unity is really the cosmic human being, which, as Alec was saying, is hermaphroditic, is androgynous, um, is male and female, as one. Yes. Two beings that are united as one. And you know what's interesting, too, is that in Kabbalistic uh, lore, that both Adam and Eve are also uh, depicted as androgynous or uh, hermaphroditic. But, you know, the fall of Adam and Eve was uh, when they were split apart into two. And you also see that, too, in Platonic philosophy. 
I think, I think it's in uh, the Symposium of Plato. He talks about you know these uh, these hermaphrodite humanity, and uh, they're basically uh, they're so powerful that the gods uh, are kind of freak out. <laughs> so they decide to uh, split them apart because they're actually storming the heavens because they're so powerful. So I think Zeus and Apollo actually uh, split the uh, hermaphroditic humans apart. So I think that's where we get that, those ideas, though. But, uh, yeah, what do you guys think? I think that's a very good point, and I think that um, it's also useful to, to realize that, as mentioned in the prior episode, the realized human, the, the awakened human being realizes the principles the principles of the gods within themselves, you know, so the awakened or realized man contains all of the deities within their own microcosm, you know, because that goes back to the, that goes back to the idea that mankind is not only a divine being and not only a deity, but mankind is actually more than just a deity. Mankind is an aeon and the aeon of the celestial human actually surpasses the, the aeon of the cosmos that we live in because it surpasses it and we contain the celestial man within each of us. We contain the universe within the celestial man, which is within us. Because of that, we contain mm-hmm. all the deities within that cosmos, within ourselves. So when we see these ancient masters, such as Simon or Apollonius or Jesus, or Abaris, or, um, you know, Helena, or, you know, any of these other people identifying as a divine being, it's not hubris, it is realization. Right, I mean, you see it in astrology, if I'm currently studying Chris Warnock's uh, Renaissance astrology, I mean, you want to manifest Mars if, if your life calls for that. And you do so by harmonizing with that energy. You you make a talisman to Mars on the day of Mars, which is Tuesday, and the hour of Mars. So, yeah, same sort of idea. Yeah, and you would be unable to do that if you did not already have that within you. Right. You know, And, again, that's also part of Hermetic Doctrine, that the human being, when descends into incarnation, assimilates... Uh, an aspect of each one of the seven planets and the compound result of the entire process of incarnation is a soul that that contains each one of those seven aspects right and you see this in platonism and in pythagorean thought as well as we mentioned in our first episode yes so yeah, let's let's cover the 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 final big thing in in what we have the remnant of Simonism is the uh, analogy with the Garden of Eden. A long time ago, I had actually picked up a book by Alvin Boyd Kuhn just by accident or happenstance, and the book was The Red Sea Is Your Blood, and you see a lot of the same kind of wordplay and and use of analogy, and in in that book. He, he he cites Philo of Alexandria, who talks about um, ancient sacred writings. And Philo says that there are uh, four ways to interpret, four, four different levels to the, the sacred writings. There's 
one, the literal or physical, which correspond to historical events. There's two, the moral or sentimental, which correspond to moral instruction. There's the allegorical slash intellectual, which corresponds to intellectual conceptions being taught. And then there's the mystical. So all of these these four things are being taught at the same time, allegedly, according to Philo, in in the uh, the ancient texts. And you see this with with how Simon talks about the Garden of Eden. Do you guys wanna wanna expound on on that view of of the Garden of Eden in that story? Yeah, I mean, uh, basically Simon in uh, well, actually Hippolytus, but he's the one who uh, uh, quotes uh, the Simonian doctrine of the uh, great announcement. <clears throat> but uh, essentially, he was Simon, or the Simonian author, was saying that Genesis is Eden is uh, a pregnant womb. So basically, uh, Eden is uh, described as a womb uh, by the Simonian author. So I can read a little bit from it, actually. I have it pulled up here. How then, he says, and in what manner does God form man? In paradise, for so it seems to him. Grants paradise, he says, to be the womb. And that this is a true assumption the scripture will teach when it utters the words, I am he who forms you in your mother's womb, in Jeremiah 1.5. For this also he wishes to have been written so. Moses, he says, resorted to allegory, has declared paradise to be the womb, if he ought to rely on this statement. If, however, God forms man in his mother's womb, that is in paradise, as I have affirmed, let paradise be the womb, and Edom the afterbirth, a river flowing forth from Edom for the purpose of irrigating paradise, meaning by this the navel. Uh, this navel, he says, is separating into four principles, who on either side of the navel are situated two arteries, channels of spirit, and two veins, channels of blood. So, uh, there, there you have it. <laughs> well, yeah, and, you know, there's multiple layers to this here, and some might not be lawful for us to speak of publicly, but uh, one layer is obviously he is describing the genesis of the child in the womb. And it's interesting because he addresses both the, um, the 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 umbilical cord that feeds the, the developing fetus. Well, simultaneously, he also alludes to the um, streams of life force that are are pouring into that same uh, fetus. You know, so there's there's these streams of life force that are pouring into the child, and then at the same time, there is literally physical life coming from the coming from the umbilical cord, going from the navel. This is also remarkable because it shows that Simon had, a, a, an, you know, an idea of the way, you know, the actual anatomical way that a child developed. And he's also describing living waters, it sounds like, and in, in the Mendean world, living waters are, are pretty big. And in, in the Baptist world, in the Mendean writings, the the rivers are the arteries of the of the world, which is another kind of 
analogy, which which kind of fits here. Well, yeah, and it's a classic. Yeah. It's that classic tendency we see in Simon, the very hermetic tendency to do the as above, so below. You know, he's describing Eden, and then he's saying Eden is replicated in the womb. He's described, and then you know, um, you're bringing it to the level of also talking about how essentially the world is a is a lar- is a womb in itself, and. So, you know, you have a uh, a parallel to uh, the womb and to Eden. You know what I find interesting is that in the testimony of truth, it says that uh, John the Baptist is the archon of the womb. And, oh, that's uh, very interesting. So well, he's almost believed, like a demiurge. Yeah, God. Well, it was also believed by the it was also believed by the Gnostics that the we live within the womb. Like the entire reality we live in is in the womb of Sophia. So, you know, we have to get past this, the sort of physicality of the idea of a womb and think of what a womb is, you know. A womb is really a, a vessel or a container that life develops within, you know. And in the same way that it was believed that incarnation into the body was a form of death, it was also believed that um, the death of the body was a form of birth. So, you know, death and birth are united here. And if you consider it in that sense, then the entire lifetime of a human being is is actually a child developing in the womb. And it's interesting because I believe it was Stanislav Grof. He developed a technique called holotropic breath work. He would do it with his clients. And they, people would regress. People during holotropic breath work sessions uh, frequently and consistently ex- would experience memories of um, their experiences in the womb of their mother. And the experiences often uh, contain profound archetypal content, in visions of deities, um, you know, visits from spirits, a sort of apocalyptic character to a lot of the visions. And I encourage anyone listening to this to... Uh, Read a little bit about holotropic breath work. Um, it's very interesting because the soul, while it's developing in the in the womb of the mother, seems to have very, very classically like uh, visionary archetypal experiences. Um, so again, we have this this you know as above, so below; as within, so without. Um, you know, connection here, and Simon describing. The womb, he's simultaneously in that typical way of Simon, he's talking about like four things at once, you know, because he would have assumed that his Gnostic audience would understand that when he was talking about the womb, he was also talking about all of creation. I think that's a good place to stop. I think we're at the end of our time anyway. I'm sure we can all go on quite a bit longer, but um, I think that's a good stopping point. Alex, I just want to uh, thanks you for coming on two episodes and, and dealing with our uh, coordination issues, getting this all worked out, but it, it did work out in the end, and I think you added some extremely valuable insights in these two episodes. Do you want to plug your book again and, and talk about maybe how far along you are and, and a release date? Oh, yeah. Uh, release date, uh, that's <laughs> to be determined, but uh, it's almost done. Uh, I am... Uh, gathering a lot of more information that 
pretty much pertains to a lot of what we just discussed in this episode, for sure. Especially with the idea of uh, <clears throat> the descent of the Logos. You know, you know how he described Simon descending to the different heavens. Well, you also see that in other texts, like uh, the ascension of a, yeah, the ascension of Isaiah, which is a, actually a Simonian text, by the way. Um, then there's also another text which isn't really gnostic but it is definitely relevant it's called uh the gospel of nicodemus or the acts of Pilate, or uh you know jesus ascend or descends to hades to uh uh free the captives from hell and satan basically but uh that's all very much connects to what i'm talking about but uh but yeah i mean the as far as like how uh the, how long it's going to take to me to finish, I'm not sure, but hopefully by the summer. <laughs> hopefully okay, in, the so next I, two week, in the next two months I'll be done, yeah. And the name of the book? Oh, yeah. The Sun Lady Unveiled. Uh, the, there is a subtitled Revelation 12 Decoded, but I may change, wind up changing that. I don't know. Uh, okay. But we'll see. <laughs> and where can people find information about this book and about what you're doing? Oh, you can they can just go to the com and just take a look at what I have on that site. I haven't really updated it in a while. I've just been busy with uh, with the book and other stuff, but uh, hopefully I'll get back to it. I may wind up uh, rebranding it to changing it to something different or changing changing the website entirely. But that's still up in the air. But we'll see what happens. All right, cool, Alex and Janice. Thank you as always. Yeah, and thank you for. Um organizing all of this and i hope that it's not too difficult for you to edit <laughs> i have a feeling it will be um but you know hopefully it's recording so that that's the first hurdle yeah for sure well this is a meaningful conversation and i mean i feel like we only scratched the surface of it but it's good because I, I don't I'm... think that there's anyone who's gone this deep no i i really doubt it i looked I couldn't find any because I wanted to. I wanted to find that source. So, hopefully, we will be a good resource for people looking into this topic. And I'm sure we'll come back to it um, in our future episodes. All right. Oh, yeah. Cool. Thank you, guys. Right, thanks, guys. So there it was. Episode number five is all wrapped up. Simon Magus, part two. I think it was a good conversation. There were other things we could have covered for sure, but time was limiting how many rabbit holes we can go down. I'm very confident Janice and I will return to Simon in the future. If you want to follow what we're up to, you can do so the easiest way being Facebook. You can just type the magician and the fool into Facebook. You can also look at our website, themagicianandthefool.com. Check out what Janice is doing with the Hermetic Federation hermeticfederation.com and they have a Facebook page as well as a Facebook group the Hermetic Federation also I would like to recommend again the Institute for Hermetic Studies and Mark Stavish all his work and I mentioned in the show that I was studying uh, Chris Warnock's Renaissance Astrology System I just want to give a plug and a shout out to that system. I'm not getting compensated or kickbacks from this, unfortunately, but I do want to give 
some focus to people that are doing quality things and putting out quality products. So Chris Warnock, Renaissance Astrology, I ordered one of his courses and I got an email almost immediately and I got the products in the mail within like a day. So the shipping was excellent. The product I'm extremely satisfied with. Um, his website's jam-packed with information, so check him out as well. Okay, so that would be it for us. I will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening, and see you later. Bye.